Imagine spending a summer having a blast being creative, making videos with one of your favorite people, then watching those videos go out into the world and become this massive global phenomenon that would lead to audiences with everyone from Beyonce to Tom Hanks and even Obama. That was the experience of today's guest, Brad Montague, who, along with his brother-in-law, Robbie, created the viral phenomenon known as Kid President. Brad never saw it coming, though. And in today's conversation, we take a step back in time to explore his passions, his interests, and experiences leading up to that moment, what it was supposed to be when they started out versus what it became, how, along with all the amazingness, was also a lot of struggle, and how when it ended, it also left Brad in a bit of a dark place that he had to figure out a way out of. And we also dive into how at the same time, he became a dad and how that really changed him and his lens on life and what he wanted to do, how he reclaimed a new sense of purpose and identity, lifting himself back into a joyful and curious and creative place by sitting in classrooms around the country and listening to young kids share what life was like and what they most wanted from teachers and adults. That journey not only brought him back to a place of creativity and curiosity and vibrance, it led to a book called Becoming Better Grownups. We dive into this entire miraculous, fun, and heartfelt journey today. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. So I grew up on a farm and you just go in your, go out the back door and you have this just open fields to run in and there were no limitations. It was just wide open and um, quiet. And, and I think that I really believe that small town life and especially small Southern life breeds a certain type of weird that you see because people are able to to create their own worlds and um there's a certain idea too you get of how communities work and how important we are to each other because we're so small we we band together it's not just solitude and i'm alone it's it's also you know i know my postman's name i i know everybody you know it's it's tight-knit yeah that's beautiful um so you grew up literally on a farm? Yes. My dad grew cotton and we had pigs and corn and 
every story that has a hero who starts on a farm and wants to leave resonated with me deeply. Like I watched Star Wars and went, yes, like Luke is right. He needs to go to battle. He's got to leave the, this little farm. All of those stories, I felt that as much as I loved that environment, I also felt this, ah, there's so much more to do and be. And, and I, I want to share this with the world. Yeah. I mean, was there an expectation when you were growing up that you would sort of continue with the farm? You would continue the tradition, sort of like a generational thing? Never stated in words, like never said. Um, I felt like there was, but the, I, I don't think there that my dad would want that. He, The big thing I got from him was I watched my whole life a grown man do what he loves to do. I saw him with animals and I saw him tending to these crops and doing what he loved. And I know that he sees what I'm doing and might be like, I don't understand how you're making money, but I see that your eyes are lighting up. And I think that, that there's a respect and, and love for that. And, and I would be a terrible farmer. <laughs> In you know, in an odd way, it's almost like you are a farmer, but you're it, it's a different fields and a different crop. I, that's that's true. I, I really, I mean, so much of what in in work, I will think about it as if it's tending to a garden. It's planting seeds and and waiting and and watching. And there's there's a story I tell uh, a lot of a man who lived down the road from us who would sing to his flowers. And while I would never want to like garden and plant flowers, I always loved, it was scary at the time because he was sitting on the porch singing to flowers. Um, but I, I liked that idea of like telling flowers a story or like seeing if that would help them grow. Because I, I know that, that that is something that nurtures us as people. And that's, that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. When does that, does that interest start to touch down when you're really young? I mean, were you somebody who loved consuming stories and devouring stories? And, and when, when did the notion of creating your own start to touch down? It's always been something that I just, it rattled my bones. Like if somebody said, hey, you want to hear a story? or I'm going to tell you a story, or once upon a time, or anything I was in. And also obsessed with creating my own that were stories always about birds who wanted to fly, like always about these um, animals and, and the farm. And I created comics. My, I would finish my tests early at, in school just so I could draw on the back. I had a teacher who thankfully noticed that. And she said, hey, you don't have to rush through. I'll give you blank paper and you can share these stories with the class. And that that really gave me an outlet. She even helped those stories. Like she would take these things I was writing and would send them to the upperclassmen who had a school newspaper. And as a fourth grader, to have your work in the school newspaper was huge. But those sorts of things were, were always something that I've been fascinated by, how you can create a world or create words together and somehow have that mean something to somebody. Yeah. I mean, that's beautiful. And and at the same time, I'm just thinking as a fourth grader, which is right around the time when most of us are kind of starting to get pretty self-conscious mm -hmm. to know that you've written a story that, that maybe you love 
But then to know that it's going to get published in the school paper and then all the kids are going to see it. Was there any fear associated with that or were you just kind of rolling with it? (laughs) Uh, The answer to that is no, there was no fear. And yes, there should have been. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, you think about what you would say to that younger version of yourself. And I was on the cusp of being of about to go through a lot of challenges, a lot of misunderstandings and people seeing the things I would share and shutting them down. One of the teachers that I talked to in the process, like visiting classrooms and things, he's a music teacher and he works with kids. He actually does PS22 um, in in your area. And uh, Mr. Greg, he said that in fifth grade, if you stop singing in fifth grade, it's going to take a long time for you to find your voice again. And I I really believe that's true. There's a point where we begin to hide these things. We begin to see how, oh, what do they think of me? Oh, what is she going to say? What is, and that really, that self-conscious stuff piles up. And that really started to hit me shortly after that. Yeah, it's it's amazing how people sometimes touch down in our lives and give us little gems like that that maybe even seem insignificant in the moment, but some way that it lands enough so that we remember it and maybe take action on it. I'm often reminded, and I've shared on the podcast once I'm sure more than once or twice, um, sitting down with Milton Glazer years back in the early days of Good Life Project, and him sharing a story about how in New York City where he grew up he was both good at, at art and, and good at science. And he was kind of supposed to go and take the uh, the exam to get into the, uh, I think it was Bronx Science, which is this legendary institution in New York. But instead, he took the exam for performing arts without really telling anyone. He was making a left turn instead of a right turn. <laughs> and his uh, I think it was his guidance counselor found out and called him in afterwards and said, hey, uh, so I heard you took the exam for uh, for performing arts. And he opened his drawer in his office, pulled out a box of these sort of like French pastel, you know, like, and, and said, you know, like, do good work. Mm. And and that was this beautiful acknowledgement to him of something like, don't stop. You know, mm-hmm. this may not be what other people expected of you, mm-hmm. but there's something here, you know, um, and you know, roll with it. Yes. Yes. That's beautiful. And, and that's what I've, I've really been fascinated by um, when you're speaking to someone, regardless of, of who they are, what you have in common with them, or how uncomfortable you feel like, because you're like, oh, they're too much, uh, they're too far more successful than me or whatever. If you begin talking about childhood and you talk about who the people were that informed who they became, it's it's like you're talking to the true version of them. They, their shoulders relax, their eyes light up and they tell you, you know, almost word for word, the moment of, of when this person told them who they were, reminded them who they were. And I, that's rocket fuel for me because it somehow brings everybody back to their purpose. And it also just reminds me how valuable it is that we remind everybody that we're doing that every day, somewhere, everywhere that's happening right now. Somebody's looking somebody in the eyes and saying, Ooh, I see you. I see. I I can see where you're headed. Yeah. It's a great moment when that does happen. Um, 
you just shared that that uh, soon after this sort of like fourth grade ish window, some bumpy times were headed your way. What what was going on? It was a whole lot of feeling like I did not fit in in any place. I had no place at the table. I was too weird for some, not weird enough for others. All of these things that I've come to discover are somewhat universal. Um, And even talking to many of my classmates, realizing that they felt the same way. And, And going through that, I carried it with me for a long time, carried that feeling of worthlessness, of not being enough and not knowing what to do with who I am. And I did a drawing of a backpack and I drew it as a way to show that there's all this stuff that I think I had been carrying around with me for so long on into adulthood, things like shame, insecurity, what people thought of me, what had happened to me, all of this stuff I'd been lugging around and hadn't realized that I could just drop that. And also hadn't realized that what was, what's been inspiring too is, is as I open up and shared that this is something I've been carrying around. I, I've found that lots of other people have been lugging that stuff around too. Yeah. Um, you're absolutely not the only one. Um, was your realization that you could take the pack off your shoulders and lower it to the ground? Did something happen or was it just a gradual awakening to that? It's been a gradual awakening to that. It's been a gradual awakening all the way around. I, I think there's this idea that I had, at least, that I would arrive, <laughs> that I would suddenly blossom like the the very hungry caterpillar and into this butterfly and growth doesn't happen that way. And it at least didn't for me because it's still going on for me. It's an ongoing process. And I think back so much about how much I wish that a younger version of me could know that and know that you're a work in progress constantly. And that it's okay to feel out of place because it's going to help you help others feel and find their place. It's, it's okay right now that you feel all of this because at a certain point, you're going to understand where other people are coming from as well. And, and you're not alone in carrying all this. And it is a process. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's funny. I agree. And, and I, you see, especially in New York City, I think maybe this is more prevalent in major cities, um, kids sort of getting, quote, tracked for, you know, you're getting tracked for the Ivy Leagues Mm -hmm. um, at three years old. It starts with the preschool, especially in a city like New York, where you literally have to go on, your kid has to interview to get into a preschool. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which has always kind of like amused me and and horrified me simultaneously. But but yeah, I mean, just to know that, you know know what, you you are a perpetual unfolding. And that's actually, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. That's just the way it is. Like if we could, if we could know that really early on, and and realize that that's not it's not a signal that something's broken. Yeah, I mean, how much suffering 
could we all avoid? At least it seems like we could. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. To just know that it's okay. Nobody else got the memo on how to do this. Um, we're all uh, learning and growing together. And and it's okay to even talk about that has been one exciting thing, even just recently, to realize that um, because I found myself after creating things quietly in a small town and then suddenly being pulled into a bigger world in which more people are paying attention to it and then realizing, oh, no, I really need to shut down. I don't need to tell everybody that I don't know what I'm doing. Having a video go viral and then ending up in these boardrooms and these big fancy people I've seen on the covers of magazines and not being able to carry that weight. And so finally just saying, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) And then having the head of a network go, oh, good, me either. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's thrilling and terrifying. Yeah. And at the same time, it's the thing that connects us all, right? Um, let, I mean, let's let's fill in a little a little bit of the gaps there. Um, so did you end up in college or did you go straight into the working world? Yeah, I um, I went to a, a small school in, in Tennessee, Freed Hardman University, uh, majored in everything possible until I figured <laughs> it out. I landed in media because I loved communicating and creating. I played around with teaching fourth grade because that was such a pivotal time in my life. And I was like, I'm going to teach fourth grade. But I found myself in all the classes really being excited about like designing videos and things for the uh, curriculum and just quickly realized I needed to be busy making and um, moved on from that into the world of news. Mm. So, so be, behind the camera in that world? Yes. Yeah, so I found myself in uh, a local newsroom. I was working alongside uh, the evening and morning news. And uh, I was a photographer. I had the camera and I was supposed to go out with these reporters and I was uh, helping capture stories. And I enjoyed it at first until I hit this point in which there was an accident at an intersection. And I was so obsessed with getting the right shot that I, it hit me in this moment that I was moving a family member out of the way to actually capture this image. And it just, I felt so gross. And I realized that I had become so obsessed with this story and, and that most of the stories I was telling, it was the worst day. It was somebody's worst day. And I was documenting that and broadcasting it and amplifying it out into the world. And I was like, I've got to find my way out. I don't know how or what, but I'm, I, I don't know that I'm built for this. And I've found people that are. There are people who are doing it well. But that was a wake-up call to me that I needed to find a way to tell different stories of what's happening. Yeah, so it wasn't that you wanted to stop telling stories. It's just this was not the type of story and this is not the way that you want to be involved in telling them. Yeah. Cause there's usually one of two ways. There's like, you tell the tragic story and they do that on the news that they'll share. There's an accident or there's like the guy who's the good news guy. And he comes on and says, isn't this great? Something great happened. And it's very quick. It's usually at the end and it's just this like positive. It's just super positive. And it's like, that's too 
blind to everything else. Uh, everything the other was too dark. Like, how can those two things hold hands and dance and be friends? Like, how can the dark and the light, the heavy and the light, how can all of those things be together and and be playful, but also heavy? dealing with the these profound things that are happening to us every day i didn't know the answer i mean it's interesting the um the as you say that the thing that immediately pops into my mind is fred rogers mm. who um you know was was known for being the guy that did that you know like for a couple of generations mm-hmm. at scale you know where he would go in and you know he didn't want to just he wanted to be of service to kids mm-hmm. and to speak in a language that would resonate with them, but at the same time was really pretty fearless and not shying away from hard things in life and introducing to them and, you know, like, and having those conversations. It's in, I feel like in a, in an interesting way, it's, you know, your, the path that you have carved for yourself over the last decade or so is sort of a, um, of that state of mind and of that lens on mm. work and service to the world. Oh, that That's very kind uh, words. What Fred Rogers did, it continues to be revolutionary to the point that it was so quietly revolutionary at the time that we're only just now catching up. Like everybody mocked him and made fun of him during his time on air, but he just kept showing up and kept doing it and talked about divorce and talked about family members in prison. He talked about death. He, he went through all of this stuff alongside children every day and, um, you know, got people just thought, Oh, he's, uh, they would use the words like Namby Pamby and he's caught, you know, like just this, this weak person when he was bold and um, that kind of fierce gentleness is what we're hungry for. It's what we need. It's what actually moves things and changes things. I think about a lot the fact that you have several in media that will do things that are about making dreams come true. And Fred Rogers released a song that was, just because you dream it doesn't mean it's going to happen. <laughs> like That's actually a song he did. <laughs> and and people were like, oh, he's just a nice guy. But no, he was saying the hard stuff. And we need to go through the hard stuff together. Um, and we we it takes fierce gentleness. Yeah. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, 
customize and create more personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. I know one of, you know, after you start to make your decision and move out of the the world of business, um, you know, at some point after that, uh, you end up teaming up with your, I believe, across the street neighbor and... uh, (laughs) And I want to dive into that um, and, and the relationship there um, that, that then becomes this huge phenomenon that we come to know as kid president. But even knowing you a little bit and knowing that you're very likely the type of person where your brain is just throwing out ideas nonstop, I'm curious, were there, were there sort of like these pockets or ideas or projects that happened in the interim there that just you kept trying and falling flat on your face or until you sort of like hit this thing? <laughs> Oh, there's a there's a, a whole like uh, just sea of terrible ideas behind me um, that I've left in my wake. That that I mean, when I left news, I was like, I've still got to figure this out, and I have I had my own camera. I was doing advertising sales for a while, and I was making commercials, and I loved being able to inject creativity into that. But there was one bagel shop in our town, and I was like, he just needs customers. If I could. I got an idea. So I said, what if I hosted a live talk show in your bagel shop, brought people in, we aired it on TV, local TV. And he's like, great, that sounds perfect. And so we did it, Um, except he kept running the business while I was doing this live talk show. So it aired on TV and it's me like interviewing the mayor and different people. We had a lady that uh, brought a dog on. She wasn't from the vet or anything. She just liked dogs. Uh, it's just all different guests from the community. And you could hear coffee grinder in the background the whole time, just going. Uh, it was terrible TV, but it w- that was my grad school. <laughs> the rest of my friends were out going to law school or wherever else. I was in a coffee shop on a no budget talk show, learning how to produce, write, make your own thing and uh, have nobody watch it. <laughs> And, but, you know, like you said, at least that was, there was an educational value <laughs> value in the experience at the end of the day. So how does the idea for Kid President drop? Like, how does this actually like come to life? Well, you know, it, I'd, I'd been just really figuring out what it was that fired me up and what I loved, like what I really loved was telling stories and bringing people together. But it was this element that I found when my wife and I started asking the question, how can we be who we needed when we were younger? Like, how can we be who we needed? And the answers to that were many. We, we began thinking of all the things we had, all the things we wished we had. One of those things was summer camp was really important to us. And we met at summer camp. We worked at a summer camp together. And then we got married on the soccer field at the camp. Uh, it was special to us. So we created this, this program for kids who wanted to change the world. And it was junior high, high school students. We're spending time with them. All of these young people that had ideas about how to make their community better. So 
I'm spending time with kids who are doing things like starting soup kitchens, a couple of girls in Alabama that did that, kids that were starting programs in their community to feed people all year round, that were doing fundraisers. We It was beautiful. And then I've experienced this massive culture shock almost of going back into adult world and not seeing that same childlike openness to solving problems. Instead, there was a critique of the problem. They actually were like, let's just do something about it. And at that same time, I had a friend who gave me some hard truth. And he said, you are one of our most creative friends, but we actually just need you to start doing one of your ideas. <laughs> and that hurt. It was like saying, you're very creative, but you actually need to do one of your ideas. And so instead of just rattling around all these ideas, we started the camp. We did the camp. And then from that, I said, I'm going to actually create something that invites people to listen to kids. What would it be like if a child was in charge? And so we got a little desk, invited my brother-in-law who lives across the street, is Robbie. And um, I just started to ask him questions. And I was going to, the original idea was just a handful of videos I was going to do over the summer while he's on summer break. And it was going to be a creative series that I was going to stick to. It was going to be an idea that I didn't give up on, but it was just going to be for two months. And the, uh, I asked him questions like, you know, if you were in charge of the world, what would you do? And he started dancing. I asked him questions about the political party system. And he said, like, I'm not in a party. I'm in a party. Began like playing, writing scripts, like playing around with how it could feel like it's very improvised, but also it had a mission and, and heart behind it that, that was pushing things forward as point of view. And it worked. Yeah. Did it work out of the gate or was there, I mean, I guess when you say it worked, I know it seems like the, the energy that, that you both had. And I think probably not a lot of people realize that there, that there was this, this guy named Brad behind the scenes or like orchestrating a lot of stuff, but clearly the dynamic between you and the comfort and the ease led to this really wonderful on-screen experience. Um, Saying it worked, I mean, how are you measuring that in the beginning and 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 how did you know that's a good question because when i think back when i say it worked like my metric was very different because the first video got like you know maybe a hundred views and lots of positive comments by lots i mean a dozen or so saying this is great you guys are awesome like, it was all friends and it was just a joy of feeling that we had made something together. And also, I started to feel like it was the first thing I had ever made that felt like me. Even though I wasn't on screen, it was like I found my voice. And I got to do it with my little brother together. We made this and we had fun doing it. And so there was just such an ease in creating them and then releasing them. And it was only by doing it i just said i'm going to release one every week and with each one they began to grow and and my vision of what we could do began to grow a lot of people think the first video was the first one they saw which we had a video that went cuckoo bonkers viral 
that was the pep talk. It was this this pep talk from him. That was our first one that really blew up. And that one was a runaway train of, you know, millions of views. But we had made about 15 or so before that. And but I'd just been building community around listen to kids, listen to kids every single week saying listen to kids, not just this kid, but all the kids around you every single week. And then millions of people started listening. So on the one hand, I would imagine that's incredible because now it gives you access and it gives you a certain amount of power and also a certain amount of responsibility. And at the same time, as somebody who, you know, loves to create and loves to tell stories and kind of loves to be in a bit of a small town controlled environment. <laughs> when this happens, when, you know, like when that one video, you're doing the early ones and you're getting a good feeling and you're doing something you love with somebody who you love. Mm-hmm. And that's how, like in your mind, well, yeah, that's success. This is awesome. And at the same time, you're 15 videos in, you're like, oh, I'm actually sticking to this. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it's proving what you were trying to prove, you know, on that level too. And then when, when the pep talk video just explodes globally into the public's consciousness, on the one hand, it's, it's quote success on one level. I'm, I'm curious how else you experience that. You know, like, was it because along with that is a lot of eyeballs and a lot of high level exposure. And I'm wondering if, you know, just what was going on with you? Was it all good? Was it all amazing? Um, how are you experiencing that profoundly rapid transition in scale? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it came from such a pure, joyful place and then suddenly became something everybody had an idea about. Like they thought they knew what it was. And I, I felt very much like oh no, people don't understand what we're trying to do here. So it went pretty fast from being, this is so fun and I'm loving this to, oh no, everybody thinks I'm doing something different than I am. Like, because on YouTube, the general idea is, you know, you film a kid opening toys or something and and you build up a community and brand around it. And, and that wasn't what we were doing. It wasn't about that. There's also this idea that that there was this big machine behind it pushing, and it was literally just he and I at the house making these. And it went from me finding my voice and my joy and making to suddenly being lost in it. And we had created a monster that was bigger than me or Robbie. People would stop him in the airports and be like, give me a pep talk. I need one right now. And he's just a child, like a normal kid and he would go uh i don't know you i'm not supposed to talk to strangers and they're like oh he talked to me and they just go away and uh at the same time there were other people who were reaching out asking you know for him to endorse energy drinks to be in move be in like a horror movie there was one film that wanted this is insane uh and i'm going this is not what we intended and so it became a constant course correction daily of going, that's not what this is. That's not what this is. This is what we are celebrating kids. This is about celebrating not just one child, but all children. This is this is about the children around you, not just 
putting up one kid on a pedestal. It's all children. And what I've found is that you can't control the mob. You can't control everybody. But there is that core group of people who who latch on to and see what you're actually up to and who believe in it and understand it and embrace it. And so I had to tune my frequency away from that and into the actual heart and soul of this mission. And the mission became what I focused on. And and thankfully, we had creative partners with Soul Pancake. It was Rain Wilson and some friends created this just wonderful production company that championed it. They believed in sticking to that, creating walls around people, turning it into something else it was, and letting me continue to guide the ship. And me trying to let it be love that's guiding that ship. Um, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of breath out of me. Yeah, I mean, I I would imagine, especially because there's the dynamic of you also, you know, Robbie was what, 10 or 11 at the time, something like that? Yeah, he was, I think, nine years old when we were at the White House meeting President Obama. (laughs) Right. So here's a young kid. And granted, yes, he's joyful. But at the same time, you're the grown up in the room. I would imagine there's a certain sense of responsibility, like not just am I doing right by the project? Am I doing not just am I doing right by, you know, the community of kids who are really trying to be a source of love and service to, but also to this one kid, you know, like who's family to me and mm. like is almost like a perpetual question in your head, which is like, is this okay? Are we okay? Is he okay? Mm-hmm. Yes. That was the constant terror. It was, I saw this side of me at the time when we started, I wasn't a father yet. So I hadn't seen that side of me of turning into Papa Bear, uh, of being able to speak up and say, no, you leave him alone. You get back like, no. And realizing that uh, this was only going to be a success if at the end of it all, our family was still a success. Like if we still liked each other, we still wanted to be together. If one person that reached out, which is, this has become a habit for me now uh, because this guy did this, but Nirvan Mulek is uh, a filmmaker. He had had a video the year before the kid president pep talk went viral. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Kane's arcade. Right. Beautiful. This guy's heart is just, I love him. And I loved that video. And I got a message from him the week after the pep talk went viral and he reached out to me. And at the time, my, I mean, my phone, my email was just a war zone. And there was this little message from him and it was just this bright light of hope. He said, a lot of people are going to be asking things of you right now. I'm not asking anything for you. I just wanted you to know it's going to get crazy for a bit. But this was his advice. Uh, he said to let the love of that you have for that kid be what informs everything you do. And it just suddenly made everything okay. It was like, okay, I don't have to worry about anything else. That's my my job in this is just to love him well and everything will be okay. 
And that, that began to inform a lot of decisions. And then we sort of had formed this coalition of people that anytime there's something that goes cuckoo, cuckoo bonkers, viral online or whatever, I try so hard to just send a little transmission their way to say, hey, like, you're still a person no matter what everybody else says right now. Um, and just take care of the kids around you. Let that love guide guide the way. Yeah. And at the same time, I mean, it was it – w- it was never really so front and center, um, but it also wasn't in any way hidden that, you know, like, Robbie has this condition, osteogenesis imperfecta, which is sort of like, I guess, more commonly known as brittle bone disease, mm-hmm. where, you know, he's just, I guess, that the, he is subject to um, having bones in his body broken um, much more easily than the average person with with even the, you know, the most normal movements yeah. or, yeah. or or impact in a way. Um that has led to, I guess, many, many surgeries over the years and, and things like that. And so I, I would imagine that that in the back of your mind, um, that that's all part of this too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it was early on, you know, when I first met him, he was just a few weeks old and they explained this condition. And I am terrified because I'm thinking, oh, this poor baby, I don't want to hurt him. And as he grew, he would want to play. And it was always he wanted to fight and be rough. And he wanted to be outside and he wanted to kick me. And I was like, this is not fair. Like, I don't want you to get hurt. And uh, there was an older child who had grown up and he had the same condition, osteogenesis imperfecta. And he said that one of the things he remembered from his childhood was his parents saying, no, you can't do this. And his advice to our whole family, to everybody, he just said, these are, these are words that helped us. He just said, we know our limits. <laughs> like, don't, don't let us know the, what to do or not to do. Let us figure out the limits. And so that, that's really what, what we attempted to do. And, and I took the lead from his mom and dad, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, who are just some of the greatest people on the planet, I believe. I watched them parent him following their lead i let him say what the limits were and watching him blossom in the midst of any challenges uh, there was a time he's a teenager now um, and a few years ago he's at the soccer field and his leg totally breaks in the middle of the game he's on the ground i rush out to the field and i look at him and he is laughing and part of it to just cover the pain. And then also he's making fun of another guy's cleats. And it's just like that's seeing the way he navigates those challenges was what made everything okay. And, and that I knew no matter what challenges he came up against or we came up against, we could march through it joyfully. And that's the strongest you can be when you're marching through things with joy yeah i mean having that compass and having that love between you i think is so powerful good life project is supported by signature hardware so if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch head over to signaturehardware.com slash good life they offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity sinks tubs hardware plus all the classics latest styles and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches and they also 
also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process so you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at SignatureHardware.com slash GoodLife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit SignatureHardware.com slash GoodLife to find your style today. That's SignatureHardware.com slash GoodLife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life isn't always perfect, but with Signature Hardware, it is beautiful. At some point also, I mean, you, you, I guess, both realized that you were building not just an audience, but a community. And it seemed like, you know, that, that the seed got planted somewhere along the way that, that, you know, like, how can we tap the power of this community to do good at scale? Like, how can we, how can we organize and activate them? You know, things like Socktober, mm-hmm. um, which will explain what that is, actually. <laughs> well, so the internet became this game for me when I started to realize that it was it was not fun anymore just to post a video. Like It was like, okay, people are watching. That's nice. Then it was, well, what could, what could we get people to do? How could this fictional world we've created actually reach out into the real world and, and shake things up? And so it started out just with dumb things where I would just say, uh, let Robbie, let's get everybody to have a big dance party. And so people would send in videos of them dancing and I would see the clips come back and it would be families, these entire classrooms. And you have these images in your head and you're going, Whoa, people are actually watching and engaging and doing something differently with their lives. What else could we do? And so we did thing where we had people mail corn dogs. Um, cause that was the thing that I did in college where, we would mail food to people. It's not smart. It was just a joke that he said, and people actually began doing it. In fact, I still get corn dogs in the mail. <laughs> it's, just, it's funny, uh, but disgusting. And then when we started activating people to love their community, to do something for their neighbors, they shared us ideas that, that were already happening. We had an initiative that we had done connected to this camp we had created with all these kids that was to serve our neighbors who were homeless. So we found out socks were one of the least donated, but most needed items for our shelter as they're getting ready for winter. And we had done it and it had been really this just personal project that was really nice locally. But then when I had a kid president YouTube video, him declare Socktober for everybody to see people not just do it because a fictional YouTube character told them to do it, but to begin doing it because they're like, oh, this is actually simple. It's something we can do. And there's no prize. There's no reward other than it's just helpful. And they started to do it. And a few years ago, I made the decision I wasn't going to even advertise it anymore or push it because I wanted to see what would happen organically. And to see that it is so much bigger than a person or a thing, like nobody even knows where it started. A lot of people are just doing it because we've already always done it. And that's something that, that I'll never grow tired of. And I'll always be trying to find other ways to do those things, you know? Yeah. And, and, and just to give a little context, October actually is, it's basically, it was it, this mass invitation for people to donate socks. 
Super simple, but at scale, it turns into this thing where in October, it's October, millions of socks at some point, like at one point, are getting donated around the country. Yes. I, I this, There was a moment within that that has – I've held dear to me because I'm in the midst of all the kid president craziness and the misunderstandings, people not understanding what we're doing or who I am or that – feeling like I'm getting lost in it all. And I was on an airplane and there was a man who he asked what I did for a living. And I said, Oh, I make silly videos on the internet. It's about kids and grownups working together to make the world better. And he's like, that's nice. Let me show you something. And he showed, pulls out his phone and he showed me a picture of him with his daughters delivering items to their local shelter. And he said, yeah, you should check this out. It's called Socktober. And, and part of me wanted to scream to him, I did that. That was me. That was my idea. And the other part, I just, I was so in shock that I'd sat there in the sky on a plane just going, wow. Like th- sometimes it doesn't matter who gets the credit. It, it just matters that it happened. And, and I got like a little wink from the universe, you know, hey, it's working. Just keep going. Just you, you'll see little glimpses here and there, but you won't always. So I hold that one dear for the days that I don't see the impact. Yeah. It feels like, I guess at a certain point, kid president as a phenomenon kind of plays its its way out. And I guess at a certain point, Robbie doesn't want to be that person anymore, right? I can right. imagine he's moving into his teen years. It's like... Can I just live my life, right? Yes, um, he is not a showbiz kid. He has no interest in it. It was just fun. Like he liked it because we were doing it uh, together. And now he just wants to play in band and soccer, be with friends, normal human boy stuff, which was the exact prayer at the beginning that he would be normal. Yeah, which also drops you into this really interesting moment, right? Because you go into this with one idea of what it's going to be. It turned into this whole different thing, teaches you a ton, um, also shows you what's possible. And I'm guessing kind of reconnects you more viscerally to both what you do want to be doing and what you don't want to be doing. And now you're a couple of years older, married, a parent at that point also then, right? Right. Yeah, I have a son and a daughter now. Right. So so then you're in this window. You're kind of like, okay, so that was amazing. What now? <laughs> yeah. I thought I, I thought it would be fairly simple. I'd just move on to the next project and that would be it. Except the next project was a kid's show that took, you know, about a year and a half or maybe two years. And it was a good show, but it never aired. Like they just didn't didn't pick it up. And then I found myself pitching projects, working on books, and really soul searching, going, well, what is it I want to sink my teeth into? A bit of fear now to even launch into an idea because I'd actually had an idea that worked and going, oh no, if you try this, it could work and could overtake your life for the next few years. So there was a bit of fear to now that it an idea would work, <laughs> not that they would fail. And I struggled too with um, really wrestling with a deep sadness, a 
depression, a, a place in which I didn't know how to pull myself out of because I didn't know what the next steps were. And so I, I, I did know the one thing I did enjoy because I was too afraid to write anything else. I was too afraid to make any more videos. I, I didn't want to go on YouTube and read comments. I didn't want to make anything on YouTube. I, I was done. So I just got an email from a teacher and she asked if I would visit her class. <laughs> and I was like, I, I can't, I wasn't going to even leave my office. And it was just an online thing. I could just check in. And she wanted me to listen to projects her kids were, were doing. And so that was the first little classroom visit that I did. We had done them before, but I, I just, that one woke me, woke me up. I sat there and I didn't have to speak. I just sat there and listened as these kids excitedly shared me ideas, shared with me ideas about how they were going to make their school a better place. And I just I started to realize maybe I could just, I don't know what this means or is or what to do with this, but I'm going to visit kids because this is giving me life. This is, is, is waking me back up to what matters. So I did school visits and then it turned into a whole listening tour. And I said, I'm not going to speak. Don't worry. I'm not going to like bore you with any new stories. or anything. I just want to hear from you. So then I would send a few prompts or I'd send a treasure map for them to talk about or uh, something for them to draw. And I would listen. Sometimes I would tape, put tape over my mouth and they would just talk to me. It's like, this is your one chance to just say to a grown up whatever you've always wanted to say. And more with each visit, it was it was like oxygen. I was just coming alive. And um, it turned into what is now this this book, Becoming Better Grownups. Yeah. And I mean, it, it sounds like it not only turned into a creative endeavor for you, um, but also to a certain extent, it was the thing that began to lift the weight of the sense of depression that you were feeling. It was the thing that kind of brought you back to a place of curiosity and interest and, and sense that, oh, and almost like it, it reconnected with you with a broader sense of purpose and, or at least being more interested in exploring that again. Yeah. I mean, what was so great is the kids didn't want anything from me. They didn't request any, I did not have to perform. I did not have to be anything other than who I was, which was a gift nobody else in the world other than my my family was asking that like everybody else wanted me to deliver the next viral thing tell their brand how they could connect with people on youtube or something that just felt icky all they wanted was just to be and share so there was that element and then there was this whole hum underneath it all of seeing that in the midst of these kids and their brightness their ability to open up there were these teachers, parents, caregivers of all types that were enabling this attitude, that were having these classrooms that were places that felt like what I wanted the world to feel like. Yeah. The, I mean, from that tour also um, becomes sort of a, like a giant data set that, that becomes this beautiful uh, new book, Becoming Better Grownups. I'm curious at what point along the tour do you start to realize 
oh, there's something here that needs to be consolidated. Like I'm getting all of this amazing wisdom from these kids. And it's not just about what they want, but it's about what they want from people who are the grownups in their lives. Like what, like how to be, a, and, I, mean, I mean, it's in the title of your book, right? Becoming better grownups. When does it go from a listening tour that's bringing you back to life to, oh, this actually needs to be a book? And, and, and why? I think it was it was about half halfway through. I, I, my goal was to get all fifty states, and I'm about halfway through all the states. And I was thinking, this isn't a podcast because there's enough podcasts, and 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 also, it, it I didn't want to worry about getting the credit, like sharing kids' voices without them. You know, it was just I wanted it to be pure, and and then. I saw this look in some of the kids' eyes as they would share with me. And it was this look of hope that I would tell somebody, like, you're going to make sure the grownups hear this, right? Like that kind of idea. And they would share it, not just because it was going to be funny to share this drawing of a grownup. They would share that they would draw them really scary or whatever. They would share some silly idea. There was that element of fun, but there was also this element of please, let them know we need them. Please, please send this message. And there was also this idea that if I really want to create things out of this be who I needed when I was younger, I think about all the adults in my life and what a gift it would be for them to know how much they matter, to live into how much they matter, and those moments with me I needed there's also, you think about, uh, we when we were running summer camps, we would begin each week by thinking about what we wanted the face of the kids to look like at the end. So we would say, okay, what does the face of every camper here look like when their mom shows up? Like, is it just total, uh, that we would talk about that face and you want that child's face to be I just experienced the most magical thing ever, and I don't have words for it. But over the next couple of weeks, mom, it's going to leak out, and I'll be able to explain it and put it into words maybe. But things are different now. So with the book, I began to think about, well, what if there was a world that felt like these classrooms? Like, What if the things that are already happening in the world were amplified and we could show people how much is happening already, interactions between an older person and a younger person that are literally shaping the future, helping us reimagine what's possible. That's, there's this strong undercurrent of good that's happening all the time that we don't nurture enough. So I thought about the, the end. Uh, I love that. The um, I mean, there are so many poignant stories and just and the illustrations also awesome. <laughs> um, that, but there's a, yeah, the whole thing is sort of like you're holding a document, which is sort of the manifestation of, of sustained wonder, mm. but also poignance, you know, and moments back and forth within it with stories between one of the things that really stayed with me, actually, there was a story you shared about a um, conversation, a kid named Marcus. Mm. Would you share that? Yeah. Well, it was one of those situations where, that insecurity was popping in again of feeling like I don't belong in this room. I had been invited to be part of a, a panel of people in which there were community helpers 
So there were people with real jobs, you know, that were working in politics. So someone that was a veterinarian, there was a law enforcement official. And then there was me. And I was just going, I don't want you kids to turn out like me. These other people are are good, but you don't want me here. And there was a kid who reached his hand up in the back. And at the very end of things, he asked a question of me and asked what I was like as a kid. And it was almost as if he knew I'm the artist in this classroom. I, I need to know that it's, everything's going to be okay. I got to share with him how much uh, his teacher then opened up about how he was, he was the artist. He was drawing. He was a little quieter. But he had created all this art. And she began to point in the classroom and show me his stuff. And I got to just let him know what a gift he had and not to lose that and that we needed him to be Marcus and to stay Marcus, like stay who you are, Marcus. And as I was giving him that, that advice, I was thinking, I've been sitting here this whole time not wanting to be me. And I'm, I have the audacity to look at a child and tell him that he's okay just the way he is. Um, so I had a lot of growth that needed to happen for me. And I have a, a drawing somewhere here in the workshop that's from Marcus, a, a thank you with, with birds. Um because we we need each other to help each other grow. <laughs> and he helped me grow that day. Mm, this is beautiful. So I think um, it feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation also. So hanging out together in this container of the good life um, and good life project. Um, if I offer up this phrase to live a good life, what comes up? <laughs> hmm. A flood of things come into my head. But there, there actually is an answer that an older man I interviewed said that I hold on to so dearly and I wanted to keep it. So I've made it into this little poem I could just carry with me everywhere. As um, I asked an old man the meaning of life and what to do before we're all dead. To love well is to live well, is all the old man said. There's a man who said that to me. To love well is to live well. And and I think that that is the secret answer to unlocking everything for us. Wherever you are, whatever context you're in, how can you love well? And I'm still figuring that out. I'm a student of love. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E 
typ.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.